Welcome to Private Equity Perspectives, a podcast by BDO USA's private equity practice. Each episode, BDO connects with leaders in the private equity space to discuss the latest trends driving deal activity, fund strategies, and portfolio company optimization. Hello, and welcome to BDO's Private Equity Perspectives podcast. I'm Todd Kinney, National Relationship Director in BDO's private equity practice based here in New York City. Today, we're speaking with two private equity professionals with decades of experience, one from a boutique firm and another who has recently started his own firm. Just a quick reminder that the remarks and opinions of our guests do not necessarily represent BDO's views. And with that out of the way, I'd like to introduce you to our first guest, Zena Rao, who's a managing director at ICV Partners. Welcome to the show, Zena. Thanks for having me, Todd. I'm looking forward to the conversation with you and Kevin. Yeah, as am I. Next, I'd like to introduce Kevin Feinblum, founder and partner at AOS Capital. Welcome to the show, Kevin. Hi, Todd and Zena. Delighted to be here, and thank you for the opportunity. Yeah, fantastic. Well, I'm certainly looking forward to the, uh, the conversation, and I'm sure our listeners are too, so let's jump right in. Zena, again, is uh, Managing Director at ICV Partners. Uh, can you tell our listeners a bit about your firm and what uh, your day-to-day looks like? Sure, Todd. Um, ICV is a 23-year-old private equity firm, and we've raised over a billion four of committed capital over four funds. And we have 24 very talented people living along the East Coast who are on the team. Uh, we've always had a focus on lower middle market companies, and in particular, family and founder-owned businesses and corporate orphans. And I've been with the firm for 20 years, which, which is a long time. And I think I've known you for at least 10 of those years, Todd. <laughs> I, I was going to say, I think you were one of my, <laughs> my first clients and definitely one of my closest friends in the industry. And, and grateful we can keep working together. Um, my partners and I have uh, together lived through two recessions and COVID, amongst other things. Um, and uh, you know, we've worked together for a very long time. Uh, you asked about my role specifically. I work on everything that is involved in deploying and returning capital to our investors. So that's sourcing, working with management to build businesses, finding and integrating acquisitions, and of course, exiting our investments. And as a firm, we've had a big focus on developing our junior professionals. So we all spend a lot of time on mentoring and coaching our team because, as you guys know, private equity is very much an apprenticeship business. Um, so the short answer is my day-to-day continues to evolve, and there's always something new keeping me on my toes. Yeah, well, it's, uh, it's certainly good to have your perspective. Now, Kevin, over to you. I know we just started working together, but it's uh, it's been a pleasure so far. So as a founder and partner at AOS Capital, can you describe your company, your role there, and perhaps what differentiates your firm uh, from others out there? Sure. So AOS Capital is a newly founded private equity firm focused on low and middle market industrial opportunities in North America. The AOS stands for Align Operations and Strategy. And we're exclusively focused on industrial opportunities where there's an opportunity really to refine strategy together with a target company and then work with the company to align operations to achieve those strategic goals. Even within the industrial landscape, we don't uh, invest or look at every single subsector. So we're very specific as to the subsectors that we focus on. In terms of my role, uh, it's a new firm and we're currently a team of two. I was fortunate to hire an excellent colleague last year. And so I'm responsible for everything from marketing, 
hey, I'm doing a podcast for the first time right now, to sourcing investment opportunities, to due diligence, to raising capital, both debt and equity, and frankly, all aspects of the investment process. Excellent. Well, uh, as you know, Kevin, I know you're, uh, you're, you're second in charge over there, Jason, and I've known him for, for about a decade. Great guy. So uh, look forward to uh, working with you guys. And thanks again. Likewise. Yeah. So Zena, back over to you. Uh, given high valuations and the fact that we are in a seller's market, what's it been like for you on the buy side? And, and perhaps you can touch on the, you know, are there any major challenges uh, that you care to highlight? Yeah, these are certainly interesting times. Um, I think resource allocation is the biggest challenge on the buy side, at least for us right now. The, the market has become so competitive that you have to know what you like and you have to know that really early or it's tough to prevail in some of these processes. So, you know, we've tried to address this in a few ways. Um, we already have been spending our time almost exclusively on family and founder-owned businesses and corporate orphans because they typically have not been managed to their full potential. And as a team, we really enjoy working with those types of businesses and leaders. But in addition to that, we've had to we've had to become ultra focused on certain niches, uh, really niche verticals within industries that we've had a history of investing in. So, as an example, within business services, we don't just invest in business services. We now have a focus on, you know, GRC, which is governance, compliance, and risk management businesses, and even logistics, which is another vertical. We've had to do a double click and gotten really specific on. Uh, freight forwarding, air cargo handling, and last mile businesses. Uh, similarly, within food, we have had to do a double click there as well. And we've identified things like ingredients that help companies have cleaner labels. So <clears throat> think of plant-based sweeteners, spices, processing ingredients like emulsifiers that influence texture and taste. Uh, in consumer, we're looking at things within you know, the restaurant industry and auto aftermarket. And similarly in healthcare, we, we have a focus on behavioral health, hospice and home care and women's health. So the goal is that when we see deals in these niches, we know very quickly if they're businesses, if we want to own, because you know, we've picked very specific spots and developed a lot of institutional knowledge in these specialties. So we can move quickly and have views on where the growth is going to come from. And without that focus, I think it would be really tough for us to compete. Yeah, certainly interesting. And I, I'm not shocked that you guys are, are getting more niche. I'm certainly seeing that across our client base. So appreciate that uh, insight. So Kevin, I know you started AOS Capital back in July of 2020. Uh, just curious what it's been like trying to do deals as a newer firm in this uh, extremely competitive environment. Yeah, well, COVID, of course, didn't help. And I think the inability to meet with institutional investors has certainly slowed things down from a fundraising perspective and, and from an access to capital perspective. But certainly, given the current environment, I'm hoping that that's easing up as we speak. Um, with it, in terms of the competitive environment, you know, looking back over my 20 plus years in private equity, I can't really remember a time when it wasn't competitive. And I'm not sure whether, whether Zena has this experience as well, but certainly all it takes is one competing bidder to make something very competitive. And right. so I think, I think a competitive environment is kind of the state of, of the world and it always has been. And so I too am focused on opportunities where I really have investment experience, an executive network, a credible reason to develop what I call complementary angles or 
plans for what the target company is planning to do, and they therefore really have a quote unquote reason to win uh, in terms of prevailing in any kind of a, a a process, even if that process isn't even intermediated, many sophisticated businesses, even smaller ones, are going to be talking to more than one person in terms of uh, a potential investment partner. And so I've been focused on the old economy areas where I actually have an investment track record and some credibility. And so those would be things like distribution, chemicals and materials, packaging, conversion, uh, et cetera. And, um, you know, the, the last, I'd say last year, 2021, certainly the second half of the year seemed a little bit frenetic with the potential for increased taxes. That certainly seemed to accelerate some activity within the M&A markets and certainly in the lower middle market. That seems to have abated somewhat. But certainly for me, I need to both find the opportunities and then pull together the equity capital as well, which obviously an established firm like Cena's does not have to do. And that certainly adds a layer of complexity to the challenge. Yeah, well, uh, yeah, you touched on credibility, but I, I think you're being a little, a little humble, uh, Kevin. You got a great track record. And certainly that's uh, differentiating you in this environment. So uh, appreciate that. Uh, I'm going to stay with you on the next one here, Kevin. I know that AOS focuses on uh, several sectors, including manufacturing, distribution, chemicals, and packaging. I'm curious what that's been like, given how supply chain issues and commodity price increases are greatly impacting your sectors. Yeah, so it's definitely an issue. And many of the businesses, as you pointed out, that that we look at are um, heavily dependent on converting materials. And there has certainly been inflationary pressure almost across the board in the subsectors that we focus on. But the inflationary pressures have been a little different depending on where one looks. In chemicals and materials, as you may recall, there was a pretty severe storm in early 2021 in Texas, which really uh, shut down the chemical industry for a short period of time there. And that led to customers being put on allocation. And that really kicked off inflationary pressures, which have persisted through into this year. And so certainly, uh, we're focused on whether the smaller companies have the business processes and the systems, and, and many of them don't, at least not to the to the level that they need to have in this kind of environment, but whether they have the processes and systems to both keep track of those material input inflation factors, and then importantly, have the pricing discipline to pass them on uh, to the customers. And so I think we, we're also working with a generation of managers who for the last 20, 30 plus years grew up in a non-inflationary environment. The US has been very lucky to have relatively very low inflation for the last 30 plus years. And suddenly we're in a high inflation environment. And so smaller companies are certainly being tested in their ability just to keep track of what their input materials uh, are doing from a price perspective, and then to turn around uh, as quickly as they can and, and pass those price increases along. So I'd say it's been very challenging for the target companies that we look at, and certainly an, an opportunity for those that are willing to em embrace perhaps a different perspective on looking at the processes, both on their supply chains as well as on their pricing. Yeah, well, certainly, certainly appreciate that insight and can understand what those smaller companies are going through. But uh, like you said, a great opportunity as well. All right, that's great insight. Appreciate that, Kevin. Now I'd like to turn it over to our coffee break guest, Doug Hart, National Technology Practice Co-Leader here at BDO. Doug's going to reflect on some of technology's 2022 predictions 
that are relevant to the private equity sector and how those have played out so far. Hi, this is Doug Hart, and I co-lead BDO's National Technology Industry Practice, and I'm based in Silicon Valley. With the um, onset of Q2, we're going to look back today briefly at our 2022 predictions uh, for the technology industry and companies operating in that industry. Uh, So with that, we'll start at our first prediction, and that's that uh, techno-nationalism would be on the rise. And I think that was largely based on a look back to 2021 and before an understanding, first of all, shortage of microchips um, that was causing a supply chain backlog during COVID, um, most notably in the, the automotive industry. And then also looking at national security concerns over 5G and other IT infrastructure, um, particularly in the West over Chinese suppliers and vice versa in China over um, Western suppliers too as well. We've continued to see techno-nationalism uh, kind of be on the rise, but really also in addition to a couple of factors compounding it. And one is the Ukraine conflict, and we're seeing tech companies as a result of that pulling out of Russia and even out of Ukraine too, where they had um, heavy R&D um, presences. And um, then also we're seeing Chinese companies continuing to delist from the U.S. stock exchanges, uh, which is due to to new SEC proposed regulations there. And so both those factors are continuing this momentum of of almost kind of creating parallel uh, uh, infrastructures and parallel um, internets and and capital markets. Um, Prediction number two is that nomadic Uh, or remote workforce would uh, continue to grow. And again, I think that's something that's ringing true. Um, We see that worker expectations set during COVID of being able to have flexible flexibility working and living remotely uh, were set. And that, uh, frankly, top tech talent is continuing to be as, as tight as before. And so therefore, it's necessary for these companies to cater to those um, workers' um, desires to be able to hire and retain the best talent. Um, some of the some of the repercussions, though, that we're seeing companies starting to really focus on is that there can be some, some tax issues created by Nexus, Nexus uh, created by uh, folks working remotely in certain locations, and also increased cybersecurity concerns with more remote workers and having more pressure on networks, et cetera. Um, and then the third prediction that, we'll, that I'm going to review today real quickly is that we predicted that companies would have to react to global tax changes. And I think part of that was really looking at uh, some countries in the OECD and, and trying to figure out a way for them to get a, a their, what they think is their fair share of taxes from the large multinational technolo- U.S.-based technology companies. Who large, and the current tax regime has been based on where really where the intellectual property is um, and trying to really move to more of a, of a uh, tax that would take into account where the customers are. Uh, that was kind of put on hold at the end of last year by the Biden administration's tax proposal uh, that was going to include a minimum five, 15% global tax rate for all companies, which was kind of a, a concession to the Western European nations. Now we see some of these um, some of these Western European and other countries starting now to move back into these these. Um, uh, 
uh, digital taxes to try to recover their fair share. Um, so that's something we still continue, continue to see happening. Um, so with that, uh, those reviewing those three predictions, I'm going to turn it back over to you, Todd. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Thanks, Doug. Now let's resume our conversation with Zena Rao and Kevin Feinblum. All right, folks, for the second half of the program, I'd like to start with you, Kevin. Just curious how receptive are institutional investors to an emerging manager such as yourself? And again, I know you have a, a great track record, so I'll give you that plug twice. Yeah, that's kind of you. Um, so I, I'd say I've been very pleasantly surprised by um, the positive receptivity of many institutional investors to um, my founding AOS Capital and to getting the firm off the ground. I think relative to 10 plus years ago, there's a much better recognition amongst the institutional investment community about the life cycle of independent sponsors becoming emergent managers, becoming established funds. That being said, uh, I'd say there's also a healthy degree of skepticism that independent sponsors like AOS Capital coming out of larger established firms actually did all the work that's required in a deal process. So it's very much the case that AOS needs to prove itself by bringing really credible and compelling investment opportunities to the invest institutional investors for them to evaluate. Many of the institutional investors have a choice. They can invest with Zenus Firm, for example, who I believe is on their fourth fund, if I'm not mistaken. Yep. And that has a relatively lower level of risk than investing in a firm like AOS Capital and its potentially first or second deal, which obviously has a higher risk factor. So that puts, I would say, additional scrutiny and pressure on the quality of the opportunities that I need to bring to those institutions. Yeah. All right. Well, appreciate that perspective. So, Zena, let's uh, let's pivot to you. I guess as, as Kevin hinted, you're uh, you're at the other end of the uh, the spectrum. You're on your fourth fund. Uh, so, what it, what is your team hearing from institutional investors? Well, first, uh, Kevin's comments certainly resonate with me because I think uh, capital allocation is a big challenge for LPs right now. Uh, there are so many funds going back for raises in a relatively short time frame, and this is one of the frothiest fundraising markets in you know recent history. So LPs are having to pick which relationships they want to keep. It's uh, it's an interesting time. I also think institutional investors are trying to discern how much value GPs are really adding to their companies. Uh, private equity is an apprenticeship business. And, you know, the longer you invest, assuming you learn from your experiences, the better you get as an investor. So we've learned a lot uh, over the years and we've tried to take those memories and learnings and really convert them into real processes to help our companies. And as Kevin mentioned earlier, I think private equity firms have benefited uh, in the last decade or so with lower rates and increasing multiples, and LPs are thinking that the future could look different. So firms that have a track record of adding real value to the, to the companies should do better. So that is certainly on their minds. And then I think the third topic that's on their minds is uh, ESG impact. So ESG efforts have really come into focus, and LPs have an expectation that all GPs should have some sort of policy and process in place to address ESG matters. Uh, there's a lot of work yet to be done on how to measure and monitor ESG efforts and truly hold GPs accountable, but you know, all these topics are on their minds. And as a firm, we're, we're happy about this development because uh, we truly believe that more diversity in the leadership ranks uh, helps companies outperform their peers. And 
we've had ESG and PE&I policies in place for some time. So from our perspective, this is a great development, but, but those are the sorts of things that they're thinking about. Yeah, I appreciate that. And for our listeners, our, our prior uh, episode of the podcast focused a lot on ESG. So I'd encourage you to listen to that one if you haven't uh, heard it already. So the next topic is something we've seen in the news a lot lately, and that is rising interest rates. Amid high inflation, the Fed has indicated that they will raise interest rates aggressively this year. So I guess, how are each of your firms preparing for this rise and how do you expect it to impact your funds? Uh, let's start uh, with, with Zina and then we'll go to Kevin. Sure. And, um, you know, Kevin touched on how uh, inflation has been affecting the sectors he invests in. I, I will tell you, uh, inf- inflation concerns me more than the interest rate because it just makes investing trickier. Uh, things like store opening costs are difficult to pin down. Raw material prices become harder to project, right? Even on a quarterly or monthly basis, even retaining talent becomes more complex. So uh, I'm sure that there will be some businesses, you know, particularly the ones that are in a position to pass on, pass on the cost increases to their customers that are likely to be net beneficiaries. But overall, that one's more concerning to me than rising interest rates because I think our industry has enjoyed low rates for a long time. So um, I I'd imagine a lot of people are expecting uh, rates to go up. But I have heard lenders say that, you know, while they're expecting the rates to go up, they also feel that there's so much competition in their own markets that they don't expect rates to move substantially for now. Uh, but overall, I think, you know, it, it should impact highly levered transactions, but uh, I don't expect a big impact in the near term. And, and for us, We've always had a philosophy on using modest leverage because we work with so many founder and family-owned businesses. So we've, we've always only used senior debt in our transactions. So it might actually help us on the margin because it may let the pain feel a little. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it, I appreciate you sharing what you're hearing from the uh, lenders. That's always uh, int- interesting and helpful uh, to the listeners. So Kevin, uh, over to you. How has the uh, current inflationary environment affected your uh, company's decision-making? Yeah. Uh, I, I think there's two, at least two aspects to the, to the question. One of which I think is actually simpler to, to, to bound in terms of potential interest burdens to the companies that we're looking at investing in. I think one can reasonably bound, you know, the potential rate increases, with some degree of likelihood, obviously um, we're not profits, but one can put some bounds around that. And that to me is the, the easier part. The more difficult part on rising interest rates from our perspective is that it's difficult to understand what the impact of rising interest rates will do to the demand side of the economy. And so specifically investing in the industrial sector it's all business to business and ultimately depends on pull through by consumers for various products. And it's difficult to understand you know, what may happen to demand. And when you combine it with, with Zena's uh, observations on inflation, which I wholeheartedly share, I think it adds to combined more, a little more uncertainty in the future outlook, which certainly gives one pause looking at new investment opportunities as one thinks about the recent historical pricing market for investments where I, I would submit that many investments that we've looked at that we either failed to prevail on or passed on were what I would might term price to perfection, where things really all need to go right, combine rising rates with inflation, it puts pressure on whether perfection really has a very high likelihood of, of coming true, so to speak. Yeah, I like, I like that term. I'm going to steal it, price to perfection. Certainly, 
seeing a lot of the same, Kevin. Appreciate that uh, intel. So believe it or not, we're at our uh, final question for the episode, and this is what uh, I like to call the crystal ball question, and that's basically where I ask my guests to pull out their crystal ball and predict what is ahead for private equity and M&A. So Zena, we'll, we'll start with you and go over to Kevin. 2021 was a record year for M&A. I certainly don't think anyone will argue with that, but do you expect to see more of the same in 2022? Or do you anticipate a slowdown? I think there were, you know, some unique drivers in 2021 that made it a record year. There was a lot of capital pent up from the previous year, 2020, and the threat of a capital gains rate change fueled a lot of activity that I, I don't think will reoccur at the same pace this year. But at the same time, I think 2022 will still be a really good uh, deal volume year because you'll have. Uh, businesses that were negatively impacted by COVID who may have delayed a process last year, they'll now be coming to market and selling through their recovery. So I think 2022 should actually be a pretty robust year, my guess. Um, you know, the following year, who knows? But uh, I'm optimistic that this year will still have some some good deal flow. All right. Appreciate that forecast. Kevin, what do you think? Well, firstly, I wish I had a reliable crystal ball, but unfortunately, I don't. Um, <laughs> I I would say, you know, I, I'm certainly not a prophet. Uh, we're very busy looking at what I think are some very interesting opportunities, and you know, we're we're really focused on on making very good risk adjusted investments. It's difficult to tell, even as we sit here now at the end of April, you know, what the rest of the year holds because inevitably there'll be surprises. But certainly as things currently stand, um, we're certainly busy enough. And I think for, for everyone in private equity, and I don't want to speak for, for Zena, uh, you know, it, it, all of us are really focused on making good investments and, and looking at what's in front of us. And sometimes it's much easier to understand what overall market volume did only in the, in the rearview mirror. So maybe we should revisit that question when we get to January of next year and then look back. Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. Well, a lot of good stuff to think about. So that's it for the episode. Kevin and Zena, I really appreciate you joining me today on our podcast. There's definitely a lot going on in the industry and, and much to think about. So it was great to get your perspective. So thanks again for joining the show. Thanks, Todd. Thanks, Kevin. Thank you both very much. All right. To our listeners, thanks so much for tuning in. If you haven't already, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and leave a review of the show on iTunes. Until next time, this is BDO's Private Equity Perspectives. The views presented by our guests do not necessarily reflect the views of their respective firms. 